1 Thessalonians 5, starting at verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. As labor pains on a pregnant woman, they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the darkness. So this day should not surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who are asleep, sleep at night. For those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. For he died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Morning, everyone. Let's pray together. Father, help us this morning to hear your word. Not just to hear it, but to live by it. To see that we are different to see that we have been changed by you. So, Father, change us more and more to be like your son, Jesus, whose return we await. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it would be nice to know when Jesus is coming back, wouldn't it? I mean, so you could put it in your diary or something. Yeah, like, oh, sorry, I'd love to catch up for coffee that day, but, ooh, looks like I'll be busy with the whole return of Christ to judge the world thing. Uh, maybe later? It'd be helpful when making purchases too, I think. Uh, would you like the extended warranty on that? <laughs> Not unless it covers acts of God. Um, it'd be nice to know how much time we have left, or at least some of the signs that we've entered the final season. But we don't. Having spoken about Christ's return last week, Paul begins this week's passage by saying, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates... Or perhaps a better translation about times and seasons, we do not need to write to you. Why not? Well, because it's pointless. When Jesus returns, the day of the Lord, it's going to... Excuse me, sorry. This is awkward. I get frustrated when other people don't turn their phone off. And now, I should probably take this. Um, You you can listen in if you like. Sorry. Hi, is that a Mr. Tim McBride? Uh, Yes, this is Tim. Thank you, Mr. McBride. Uh, I was just inquiring as to whether you plan to be home later tonight. Uh, Yeah, I suppose. Why? This is just a courtesy call to inform you that you may wish to make alternative arrangements for tonight to avoid any unpleasantness. Alternative arrangements? Unpleasantness? I mean, what what are you talking about? This is a service we provide for all of our victims so that our proposed burglary of your premises might go as smoothly as possible for you. Burglary? I mean... If we pop over around 11, do you think you'd be able to be out by then? Maybe just pop a key under the mat if you want to minimise structural damage. Uh, Okay, will do. Uh, And I'll put in a courtesy call to the police so they can make arrangements for your stay with them to be as comfortable as possible. Uh, I... Can I put you on hold for a minute just while I consult with my supervisor, please? (sighs) What, What kind of burglar does that? Phones ahead to make an appointment. And of course they don't, otherwise you'd be ready for them. And likewise, says Paul, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It'll be a surprise, without warning. 
when you least expect it. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. That's been the state of our world, hasn't it? Drifting along, not realizing the judgment that's about to come on it, without warning, all the while thinking everything is okay. Uh, Paul describes them as saying, peace and safety. That was a bit of a political slogan back in the first century Roman Empire. Uh, Like back in 2008, Obama with yes we can or change we can believe in. Or, Or eight years later, drain the swamp and make America great again. Maybe closer to home, moving forward, axe the tax or or jobs and growth. You see, back in the Roman Empire, it was peace and safety. The slogan extolling the benefits of the regime. Uh, Peace and safety, courtesy of the Roman Empire and its glorious, almost godlike emperor. Security and political stability so that we can all get on with the business of living our lives and making money, free from fear and unrest. Sound familiar? We might not say peace and safety, or likely to say stop the boats or jobs and growth, but it means the same thing. To focus on the here and now, on material prosperity, on insulating ourselves as much as possible from all the bad stuff that's out there, sticking our head in the sand and thinking that it will forever go on being business as usual. That great Aussie slogan, she'll be right. And even the pandemic hasn't shaken us all that much, really. I mean, once we'd stocked up enough toilet paper to survive even the most bowel-punishing apocalypse, we got back to our reassuring slogans, you know, flatten the curve, uh, we're all in this together, stay COVID-free and do the three, and these days it's kind of living the new normal. Now, on the one latex-gloved hand, it's been an important way, these slogans, to help our world through its first truly global crisis since World War II. But on the other surgically scrubbed one, and it's against this kind of backdrop, says Paul, that Christ will return. When it's least expected, without warning, this complacent, self-reliant, godless world will be judged for its rebellion. Sobering warning, right? But not us. Because we're not like that. This is how Paul describes us, those of us who belong to Jesus. He says, but you, brothers and sisters, you're not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We don't belong to the night or to the darkness. Now, this is the first of Paul's word plays. You may have picked up during the reading there, where, uh, where he contrasts Things like night and day, light and darkness. But when he does it, he he slips in and out of literal and metaphorical uses. Uh, Literal thieves come usually in the literal night. And he'll say later in verse 7, literal drunkenness also happens most often in the literal night time. But he's also using darkness as a metaphor for the state of the world. A world that's living apart from God in immorality and ignorance. A world that, ethically speaking, is in a permanent state of being nighttime. But he says, we're not like that. We're not in this metaphorical darkness. We belong to the light. We belong to the daytime. Why? 
Because through the grace and the mercy of God, we know the truth. As the ancient Greek playwright Euripides wrote, night is the time for thieves, but daylight is the time for truth. And I think Paul might have had this in mind, this idea of using polar opposites, light and dark, night and day. He's stressing the difference between us and the rest of the world. Because we belong to Christ, we are now of a completely different character. We're not like the rest because we belong to the daytime. Now, particularly for younger Christians, a lot of the time the temptation is to try and hide this difference. To try as much as is possible to look like the rest of the world. And in many ways, this is not a bad thing. I mean, Christians have frequently been unnecessarily different in surface things like clothing and music and jargon. Exhibit A. That one never gets old. The word Christian has almost irreversibly been associated with uncool. Inviting ridicule, which is unfortunate, but often provoking a summary dismissal of the gospel because of it, which is tragic. So yes, we need to avoid coming across like that wherever possible. We need to follow the Apostle Paul's example of being all things to all people, of becoming like those we are to reach. We need to build bridges with our culture to communicate the gospel effectively. But realize that in terms of our character, in terms of who we are, we're still different. And don't be ashamed of that. Don't hide it. Because by the grace of God, and only by the grace of God, you now belong to the day. You're not in darkness. You are the light of the world. So wear that with confidence. Wear that with self-assurance. Because although you might be in the same places as everyone else, you might be dressed the same as everyone else. You might be involved in the same activities as everyone else. You belong to the day and people will see that. They will see it when you treat others with compassion, bearing with the more difficult and awkward people in your group, going out of your way to include them, not avoiding them and talking about them behind their back with everyone else. They'll see you living with different priorities, that you're less concerned with, with building wealth or building popularity. That although you enjoy watching sport or hanging with friends, there are things in your life that are more important. They'll see that you have a source of strength to deal with difficulties. That you approach tough times with a different perspective. They'll catch a glimpse of that, of what it's like to live for eternity rather than just for the here and now. What it's like to live for something bigger than just yourselves. And a lot of the time they'll find it intriguing even sometimes attractive. So you might cop a little bit of hassling on the surface, but if you confidently display your difference in these ways, most of the time at least you will get grudging respect. But more importantly, you'll be doing your job as children of the light, showing what it means to belong to the day. And that's Paul's next point. You're different, he says, so live like it. He says, so then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let's be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Right, so here we've got Paul's second wordplay where he's mixing literal and metaphorical uses. Because we belong to the day, our life should exhibit appropriate daytime behaviours, not nighttime ones. 
Uh, what do people do at night? Uh, they sleep and get drunk. Uh, not necessarily in that order. Uh, and they sleep and get drunk in qu- quite literal fashion in literal night. Therefore, Paul says, our life should be the opposite. We should be awake and sober. Now, clearly he's not being primarily literal, right? Because as though, although we belong to the day, we still need literal sleep. Although certain Christians may have a caffeine problem, even certain pastors. <sighs> Thank you. Um, having this Holy Spirit is not the same as taking no-dos. Right? Christians still need literal sleep. So being awake and sober as opposed to asleep and drunk is a metaphor. What he's saying is don't be lulled into the indifference of this world, a world that's asleep to God, blissfully unaware of the coming judgment. Don't be dragged into the depravity of this world, a world that's living in immorality and self-indulgence, under the influence and therefore unable to control its behavior. We're not like that. As children of the day, be awake, be alert to God and his rule in the world. Be sober, be self-controlled. Now, the cleverness of Paul's wordplay is that one way of behaving in a sober manner is by being literally sober. That is, although being awake and sober instead of asleep and drunk has broad application to all of life, it does have a literal application too. Don't get drunk. Now, the Bible is not saying don't ever drink alcohol. The Bible doesn't say you can't drink although you might think it is a wise choice not to. Of course, if you're under 18, it's against the law, and God tells us to respect the laws and obey the laws of our land. But for adults, the Bible doesn't say you can't drink, but it does say you can't get drunk. Why? Well, firstly, being drunk means that you've lost a measure of control over your actions. Something else is controlling you. In his letters to Timothy and Titus, Paul links not being drunk with being self-controlled. And in his letter to the Ephesians, he says that being drunk leads to debauchery, that is, to immoral actions. As Ange said a couple of weeks ago, if we're drunk, we're more likely to make ungodly choices, uh, in the area of sex in particular, but also in being aggressive, in being unloving, in seeking the wrong kind of attention, or engaging in behaviours that risk our own lives or risk the lives of others. Being drunk is the opposite of what a follower of Jesus, what a child of the light should be. That is, self-controlled and pleasing to God. And secondly, habitual drunkenness is idolatry. It's replacing God as your source of enjoyment and satisfaction, relying on the effect of a chemical to feel good rather than looking to God. I like to be upfront about my hypocrisy, although I do feel like there's a difference. I mean, for a start, you can ask my family later whether I'm more godly before or after my first coffee of the morning. But more seriously, part of the intoxicating effect of things like alcohol is that loss of control, of losing your inhibitions, of being taken over by an external force. Again, in Ephesians, Paul contrasts being drunk on wine with being filled with the Spirit, capital S, referring to the Holy Spirit. Because that's it, isn't it? Uh, By getting drunk, we're allowing alcohol to take God's place as our source of pleasure. We yearn to lose ourselves in something bigger, to be taken over by a feeling of exhilaration, our fears and our inhibitions fading away. 
That's our desire for God talking. Because we were created for a relationship, an intimate relationship, with nothing less than the powerful, unfathomable, awe-inspiring creator of the universe. But so often we choose instead to get a temporary high from the contents of a bottle. We trade the thrill of being a child of God for a, what's essentially a swig of rotten fruit and vegetables. But since we belong to the day and not to the night, since we belong to the day, that is not our choice. In the face of a culture that sees binge drinking as normal, that views alcohol as some kind of God, that bows down to this glass-bottled idol and indulges in all kinds of shameful worship like the pagans of old, in the face of all this, we will shine as children of the light. Again, show that we're different, that we don't need it, either by not drinking or being able to enjoy an alcoholic drink over the course of an evening without having to get drunk. I mean, forget summer, who made beer the boss of us? Who made anything else the boss of us? So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. And of course, that involves far more than avoiding alcohol. Being awake to God means that we don't medicate ourselves with the other distractions of society. That we're not so immersed in TV, in celebrities, in sport, in online gaming, in gambling, in social media in the lives of our children or grandchildren, in the lives of others, that we are asleep to God, that we become so much like the world around us that we forget that we're different. We forget that we belong to the light. So being sober means we are self-controlled in everything and not mastered by anything so that it might replace God as the guiding force in our life because we belong to the day. And because we belong to the day, we need to be not just sober, but awake. We need to be alert to what's really going on in our world. Not buying into that peace and safety message of the empire. Nor the opposite of recognizing the problems and suffering and evil in the world and thinking that human action alone is going to solve it all. We need to be awake to see how God sees the world rather than falling for the world's lies. To start off with, we need to be awake so that when our world does something that is in line with God's purposes in the world, we get on board enthusiastically. When the world decides it wants to feed the hungry or to defend the marginalized, to care for the foreigner, to address racial inequality, to put a stop to sexual assault and abuse or to properly steward the world's resources, we should be there going, that's what God's been in the business of all along. We're right there alongside you. And we also need to be awake to the fact that most of the time, when our world does this, it's engaging in this without acknowledging its creator, the one who made this world we're caring for, the one in whose image every person was created, and the one who one day will judge us for how we are born his image in his world. So we need to be awake alert, wise, to discern which parts of the world's agenda are not part of God's plan for humanity. And sometimes to make a stand against them that will make us quite unpopular. Yet where they do echo God's plan 
to participate and to nuance our participation in them so that it's clear to everyone that we are doing so because of God, because we belong to God, because we belong to the day. Not only do we have a different character, not only do we behave differently, we also have a different destiny. Verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So since we belong to God, since he's at work rescuing us from the judgment that's facing the world in darkness, he says, put on the armor that God provides, the armor of God. And here Paul's drawing on an image from the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. Now have a listen, the context in Isaiah is a rebellious world where there was no justice, no right living. A world that was in darkness and deserving of judgment. Isaiah says, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to what they have done, so he will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. In Isaiah, God is the one who's wearing the armor. He's wearing the breastplate of righteousness. He's got on his helmet of salvation. And so he comes to bring judgment to those who do evil and salvation to those who repent. But here in 1 Thessalonians, who gets to wear the armor? We do. We put on the armor that's provided by God, who's already won the victory. We put on his armor, the righteous, justice-seeking character that he has given us, the hope of salvation that he has won for us. It's this action of God that has made us different. It's this action of God that's enabled us to live up to who we are. It's his victory that gives us assurance of our destiny. The victory he won on the cross. Verse 10, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Right, again, a, a bit of a word play on awake and asleep, but this time different metaphor, meaning alive or dead. In other words, Jesus died in our place, paying the penalty for our sin and rise to new life so that we will live together with him when he returns whether we're still alive at the time, whether we're still awake, or whether we're dead, whether we've fallen asleep. We belong to the day. So that on that day, when Jesus returns, we have certainty that we will be with Jesus forever. We don't know when Jesus is turning up. But we don't need to. Because the day of his coming isn't something we need to fear. We don't belong to the night. We belong to the day because we belong to Jesus. And that day, it belongs to him.